going through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 17, and we've been looking for the last few weeks now, a little more than that really, at the last week before the cross. Now we're really in not just the last week or the last days, we're in the last hours before the cross. Because of that, uh, we've, we've seen from about 13 on especially, things just get more and more intense. You see uh, Jesus speaking more and more about the impending death on the cross, about the resurrection. You see Him investing in the disciples the things that He believes are the most important. We've talked about that, that, that more and more He's getting in those last things. But what He wants to pour into the disciples is not the last most important thing. Before He's betrayed, before He's arrested, before all of that, before He goes to the cross, He goes not just to His disciples, but He goes to His Father. You know, we've probably all at some point or another had what, uh, I just lost his name, Jonathan Edwards, called the dark night of the soul. Nights where you wrestle with what is happening in your life. Nights where sleep just flat does not happen because you are, are wrestling with God in prayer where peace doesn't come easily until you feel that at least as far as you can discern, you are right with God and right with what He has happening at the moment. And while Jesus doesn't have things He regrets uh, in terms of His own actions to wrestle with, as we often do and as often keep us up at night, He does have the circumstances that are surrounding this week. He has the people who are the people of God who are supposed to embrace Him as the Messiah instead of accusing Him of being demon-possessed, of being Himself from the devil. You have people who were supposed to be uh, the ones who would shout Hosanna, Hosanna at the triumphal entry instead who stood aloof with their arms crossed or their fingers wagging in accusation who have not only rejected Him, who have not only accused Him, who have not only blasphemed Him, but who have actually gone so far as to conspire with the, with the corrupt Roman government to have what is about to happen, a kangaroo court, a mob, and a crucifixion, an execution that really was illegal from the very people who were supposed to love Him, embrace Him, and said they were waiting for Him, the Messiah, to come. That's not a good week by any stretch of the imagination, is it? Not a good week. When we don't have good weeks, where do we go? Well, the question up there is, you know, what would Jesus pray for? We had the several, now over a decade ago, uh, the reintroduction of uh, Sheldon's book, What Would Jesus Do, really originally in his steps, and it was kind of a modernized version. That got popular, and people wore plastic wristbands, you know, WWJD. They wore the T-shirts and the hats, bumper stickers and all that stuff. And, of course, part of the problem was the world looked at that sometimes and said, well, I know you got the bracelet, but I don't see, what, see actually what would Jesus do. I don't see you doing that. Understandable. That's a fair criticism if that's the way we were, right? Mostly it wasn't. Mostly people really were seriously trying to challenge themselves to ask, what would Jesus do? And it's a fair question, too, to ask, what would Jesus pray for? Prayers have a, a unique way of helping us get insight into somebody's heart. I mean, what somebody prays for, that's the stuff that is most important to them, you would think. I think that's, that's a fair assumption. Uh, if it's really important to you, it's going to show up in your prayer life. If it's really important to you, you'll have a prayer life. That, that can also be fairly said. So when we look at, at John 17, which is all a prayer from the heart of Jesus, we actually get the answer to this question. What would Jesus pray for? If He were here right now, what would He be praying about? 
Well, some of the things he prays for in John 17 wouldn't be the right here, right now. Those things have already happened. So there is that. We're going to read the whole prayer. But we're going to focus this morning on the last part of the prayer where he prays for us. And, and if you aren't familiar with the prayer, you may be surprised. Jesus today, uh, we will read. He prayed for you. And we can know what would Jesus pray for us. What would he pray for the early church of Christ? What would he pray for every church anywhere and Christians everywhere? Let's read it and see. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, who, all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Now, we might want to pay attention here, right? This is Jesus telling us what is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. What would Jesus pray for? And the first thing here is, He prayed that you know Him. He wants you to know His Father. He wants you to know His grace. He wants you to know His love. He wants you to know how He has sent His Son specifically to be given on the cross for you. And so when Jesus was facing the cross, this was His prayer. God, I want them to know You. This is what eternal life is all about. It's not about a get-out-of-hell-free card. Okay? That's not what it is. This isn't monopoly. Eternal life is about knowing God and God knowing you. He says, I want them to know that. He says, I glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know what that is? That's Jesus saying, God, I can't wait to come home. You ever thought about that? I don't think I have. You ever thought about that? One of the things that Jesus prayed first was, God, I can't wait to get out of this skin. I can't wait to get out of this life and have all of this accomplished. I've done what you, what you sent me to do, and I just want to be home. And he has the same yearning that he, when he says, I want them to have eternal life, I want them to know eternal life, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. And he says what he wants us to feel. I think he wants us to feel uneasy here, out of step out of rhythm with the world around us, longing to be actually home. This is what Jesus... It's all right. You know, somebody says, oh, you know, you just want to get on to heaven. Okay, so did Jesus. That's all right. That's okay. That's a normal, natural longing, according to what he says here. Verse uh, 4, 6, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Here he's talking specifically about his disciples and the apostles. I am praying for them, verse 9. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All, are my, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He prays for them because he says, I'm nearly done here and I get to come home to you, but they're still here. So on Jesus' heart for the apostles, for the disciples that were there already who already believed, he's saying, listen, there are going to be some things they still have to face. I get to come home. Them not yet. So he lifts them up in prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He wants them to know relationship. 
While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given Me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to You, and these things I speak in the world, and they have, have My joy... And they may ha- that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has hated them because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. For everything they're going to face, Jesus says, I'm not asking, again, I'm not asking for a get out of the, the hell they're going to face here either. Instead, he says, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He prays for the apostles, for the disciples, that God would keep them faithful, that God would keep them strong in their understanding of of His Word and His will and of the promises, that they will be able to get through whatever comes at them. He had prepared them all this time telling them, listen, we know what's ahead. People are going to hate you because they hate me. People are going to persecute you because of the Word that you testify about that's really about me. And you're going to take some of the heat that's really mine. Stay faithful. Hold on. Abide in Me. That's what we looked at in John 15. You can be fruitful, but you're going to have to hang on. He's told them in 14 and 15 and 16, I'm going to send the Spirit to you so that He will be a comforter, so that He will remind you what to say. And here Jesus goes to the Father and says, God, keep them faithful. I've kept them faithful while I've been here. Keep them faithful after I'm gone. Strengthen them. Guide them. Sanctify them. Set them apart for your purpose by your Word and by your will. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. One of the things you get really fast in Jesus' prayer about His heart is the unselfish nature of what He was really about. It wasn't about just Him. It wasn't just about His purpose. It wasn't just about what He did. His greater concern was others. His greater concern was those who were going to go and serve in His name. And it wasn't all just about Him. That seems funny because we would say it's all about Jesus. But Jesus was the first one to say, well, no, really not so much. He had other people on His mind, other people on His heart. And He even says, you know, I get to come home. But they still have a lot to face first. God, keep them safe, keep them whole, keep them faithful, keep them. And then He comes to us, verse 20. This is where we really want to focus this morning because this is, this is the part that, again, we take home and live. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You gave Me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You loved Me. Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, may be with Me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, excuse me, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We uh, were looking this morning in our class 
at one of the, the basic things you do when you're looking at Scripture trying to get out, okay, what am I supposed to get out of this? What am I, it's basic interpretation stuff. When you go into Scripture, you're looking at what are some of the principles, what are some of the things that are said, what are some of the things that are repeated, because that's, that's going to be important. If, if God and the writer and the Spirit all said, say this three times, you need to catch this, right? And over and over again, he says... Uh, a few things that are really, really important in his heart. Tells us about Jesus. What would he pray for? If, and if that's what he would pray for, what should we be praying for? And working toward, really, too. So this is verses 20 to 23 here that I wanted us to catch. You can kind of see where that's highlighted and stuff. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their words. So that's us, okay? Know that first off, this was timeless. I want to pray for everybody who's going to believe because of the Word of God that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that's all of us, right? But those who would believe that, what does He want us to know? What, is, what does He want us to get? That they may all be one. We live in a time, i got to tell you, we live in a time where we are not the answer to Jesus' prayer. We're supposed to be, but we're not. Now, we pray believing that anything, while not, not everything is possible with man, but everything is possible with God. But we also know there is such a thing as free will. Not free willy, that's a whole other story, but free will. Where we actually, that's why they wanted a free willy. They thought he had a free will and he wanted to go. I guess maybe it applies in a cartoonish sort of a way. But we, uh, we had the ability to decide, will we actually comply with what Jesus prayed? Will we actually be part of, or will God have to work around us? And God, listen, if we're not one, God will raise up people who are. And that's one of the things we need to remember. God will always raise up somebody to accomplish His will, even if you refuse. That's important for us to know. But we'd rather be a part of His will, wouldn't we? That was Jesus' prayer. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. His will is His word. And His word is His will. So he wants us to fall in line with that. But he says, I, want, I pray that because they believe in me through your word, that they will all be one. And you look in the phone book, are we one? It's not a hard test, is it? Look in the phone book, are we one? Do all Christians get along? Do all Christians work as one body? Do we, do we see before us one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church? You answer it for yourself. Are we? Curly just laughed. I'm taking that as a no. Okay, that's why I'm going to take that. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one. And then what does he say? In verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Well, now here's where it really hits home. Jesus is praying to God. God, if the world is going to believe, my people need to be united. If the world is going to believe, God's people need to be united. I wonder... You know, some of us love history. Some of us don't like history. Uh, who, I don't remember which one it was. One of the quilting ladies one Thursday said, History, I don't want to know anything about all of that. I'm living in the right here and the now. That's not what you thought about quilting ladies, is it? That's, that, uh, just do it. You know, go with the gusto. It's spicier than you think. So, it wasn't, I don't think it was Wanda, but she would apply, right? <laughs> The, uh, but, but the truth is that history affects us whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, or anything else. One bit of history that's interesting is that, do, do you know Church of Christ history very much? Because a lot of us don't, you weren't all, you don't all come from a Church of Christ background, and that's 
fine, right? Because what are we all trying to be? One. And so we're not worried about that. But what I'm asking is, do you know the history? Interesting part of the history. If you only knew the Church of Christ from about 1970 to now, you might think about, and especially the 70s through the 80s, 60s, 50s through the 80s. I'm thinking of a few particular authors. Let's go back to the 40s through the 80s. We had some good times, though. But we, we also have had some very divisive times. And I don't bring that up to, to be negative. That's just, it's just history, okay? But I'll actually bring this up to say if you only knew it during that window, you might think that's what it was all about, being apart and being separate, and we're not like those people, and those people aren't like us people, and we don't have anything to do with people who are different than us, and if it's not the right sign or they didn't have the, the order of worship in the right way and the bulletin in the front, or if they had it in the bulletin, I don't know why they got that in the bulletin. You know, all these sort of things, it can be really picky and, and divisive. Well, that's not most churches, but there's enough of it that we're all aware, aware of it, okay, if you come from that background. So you might have thought that that actually was the norm, that that was the purpose, that that was the history. And guess what? Total opposite. Total opposite. At the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, there was an, an awakening of people all over the place, in, in, in the New Americas, over in, in England as well, and all over the place, that, that where people started saying, you know what? Christianity is not answering this call. Jesus wanted us to be one, and all we've done is make more and more and more divisions. Ever since the, the Reformation started in the 1400s, 1500s, all we've seen is more and more and more division. Some of it along theological lines. Some of it doctrinal lines. Some of it traditional lines. Some of it political lines. In Europe, it was largely a, a lot of times political division, which never should have had its play in the church at all anyway, or vice versa. But that's what happened. That's just history. Again, in the 18th and 19th centuries, people started waking up and saying, you know what? We're supposed to be one. That's what the Bible says. And yet all we're doing is pointing out each other's faults and dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing and dividing. But what was Jesus' prayer? That we would be one. Now out of that grew a group of people called the Restoration Movement. If you know the history, I'm doing this is oversimplified this morning. Go home, do your homework. Read about it. But the Restoration Movement grew up, a lot of it out of places like Kentucky and Ohio and places like that, while there was also the same thing happening simultaneously, but not always connected, in places like England. Out of that came a couple of guys called Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell. You don't have to remember this stuff. It's not going to be on the test at the pearly gates. But Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell, both of them coming out of a Stone, a Presbyterian background. Alexander Campbell, a mix of Presbyterian and, and Baptist background, both of them Scottish Presbyterians, so those are my peoples. So, you know, we got all of that going on. But they, they both separately, but then they came to know each other and wrote back and forth. Separately, though, came up with the conviction that they wanted to be Christians only, but not the only Christians. We forget that last part, but not the only Christians. And they wanted to get back to doing Christianity simply as the Scripture said. So they read things like this and said, well, one of the things it says is we're all supposed to come together and just be Christians and be one. And they started shedding all of their labels. They shed uh, Barton Stone and, and the other people in his congregation actually had a last will and testament of their, their overseeing presbytery board. They said, we want to just simply dissolve into the body of Christ at large. We do not want to be contributors to greater division. We just want to be one. And so we're getting rid of our names. We're getting rid of our boards. We're getting rid of all this stuff. We're just going to be Christians and we're going to meet over here. You want to be part of us? Come be part of us. 
We're going to love the Lord and serve the Lord as best we can, to the best of our understanding. And so they did. Campbell doing the same thing over where he was in West Virginia, Stone in, in Kentucky. And that grew and it spread across the United States in an incredible way. But the call was always to be one. In the beginning of the restoration movement, they had a lot of the same things that you see now where there's discussions about, well, is it okay to have, you know, should it be a cappella or should it be instrumental? Well, you didn't think I was going there, but I went there fast, didn't I? But should it be a cappella or should it be instrumental? Should it be uh, at 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock? 10 o'clock is biblical. We sin every Sunday that we have class at 9 o'clock, just so you know. But, you know, we really should repent. But we're not going to do it because a couple of you have standing dates at Underwoods that like they're going to run out of food. I ain't ever seen it happen. Those hot rolls, they'll keep coming regardless. But, you know, we worry about those things. But they, they argued about all those kinds of things. What were 1800s? They were talking about instrumental music. What's the role of, of women in worship? And all the same things that we talk about now. You know what the difference is a lot of times, though? Most of the time in the 1800s, if they didn't agree, you know what they did? They worshiped and served the Lord anyway. No kidding. Some of the staunchest arguers for one side or the other still believed the other side were their brothers and their sisters in Christ because their commitment was to being one with each other and with Jesus Christ, that the world may know that Jesus is the Son of God and through faith in Him have eternal life and know God the Father in eternity. That became the most important driving force in that movement, and that movement exploded. It exploded. The only time we struggled with shrinking is when we've lost sight of that and gotten sidetracked into making those differences divisions rather than what they were most of the time, differences of opinion and interpretation. I mean, you've got to worship according to your conscience and serve according to your conscience. I'm not talking about that. That's what they believed. They also believed that, like Romans 14 said, when you have two brothers with a differing conscience, each should serve as they are convicted and love each other. Period. No asterisk. Right? So that's quick history lesson, all just, <laughs> that was a long introduction, I promise the rest isn't that long, the, uh, the, because the fix of this is actually pretty easy. The fix is what he prayed for. Actually, let me go back to that right quick and just look at one other thing he says. Verse 22, he says, the glory you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. One of the things you look for in interpretation, were they trying to get us to understand? Well, if they repeat it six times, maybe they want us to get it to understand. And I understand this is a prayer to God the Father. But Jesus is revealing His heart and the Spirit had John write it down so that we learn from it. Okay? So, that they may be one. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that You have sent Me and loved. See how many times He said that? That they may be one. That they may believe. That they may be one. That they may be one. That they may believe. You get the idea? Jesus believed that our unity in Christ was essential to the world being able to see a good witness to His Messiahship, Sonship, and to the promises that He gave. If unity is gospel, division is anti-gospel. If unity is Christ, division is anti-Christ. So what should we be working toward if we want to be His people? What should we be working toward if we want to be a witness, a powerful witness to His people? There's still things you have to hash out. There's things that, you, that you're going to differ on. Maybe even really, really important things. None of this downplays the importance of being obedient to the Scriptures and obedient to God through them. None of it downplays the idea that there really is truth about things. That there really are some rights and wrongs. And that at times, 
You're going to differ with people not over opinion, but over like real right and wrong stuff. But you work through that. You continue talking. You continue studying. You continue working because you really believe this. If you believe like Jesus, if you pray like Jesus, if you live like Jesus, this is clearly His goal. Not to have the goal is to be out of line with Jesus, right? So that's, that's one of the things that we need to remember. So how do we get there? And this is true whether you're talking about a congregational level or you're talking about like within churches of Christ or when you're talking about christened. I like to use the term christened. Just everybody who thinks they're a Christian, whether you know, God thinks I am or not, right? So because who, how do I know? He knows. So the first thing, and this is a nice little handy acrostic, which I did not make up. I got some, somebody smarter than me. If you're a note taker, this will be really easy. If you're a memorizer, hopefully so. But the first thing is uplift. One thing that starts to dissolve a lot of these differences is simply the act of encouraging each other to grow in your faith. Encouragement goes a long way toward helping us to be one body of one faith because we have one Lord. Just uplifting each other, praying for each other. When you have a difference of opinion, instead of always being so ornery about it, that's a good Texas, right? Ornery about it. Then what do you do? You encourage somebody. Well, have you considered this point? Have you looked at this? There are ways to handle differences of opinion and differences of conviction that are uplifting. Study together. You want them to humble themselves and see what's, what's wrong with their doctrine? What do you have to do first? Oh, well, maybe you wasn't as easy as we thought. you got to humble yourself and say, you know what? As much as I think I might have something to teach you, you have things to teach me. There are things that you exemplify as a child of God that I need to work on and build them up. You know, somebody you built up is more likely to hear what you have to say. Isn't it funny that way? I mean, aren't we all kind of wired that way? It's just basic human instinct, isn't it? uplift each other. Remember that you're all in it together. I think as we talked about last week, as the world gets tighter and tighter against the church and against some of the morality that almost all Christians agree with, we're going to need more and more to build each other up in the faith, to encourage each other, to be sure of convictions, to be sure of faith, and, and to be the answer to the, to the second part of his prayer, which was, you know, help these disciples to hold on when it gets tough because they're still stuck in a world that's set up against them sometimes. So you build each other up. It's hard to be divisive against somebody that's building you up and vice versa. The other is this. Look at needs. Unity is often born out of people serving together. And so what we need to do is to look at what can we do in the community where we can serve and it not just be about us. I think that's very important, and it not just be about us. I'll give you a good example. Several years ago, probably more than I want to think about, might be... Might be 90s. Might be 90s. Some of you weren't born yet. I was uh, working with a church at the time, great church, uh, that 105 years old at that point. 105 year old church. You know what had happened 105 years before, by the way? Let's go back to the history lesson. The Restoration Movement doesn't just comprise of the Churches of Christ, it comprises of the Churches of Christ, a cappella, most of them, not all, not all. Uh, but basically, at least some point in their history, the independent Christian churches and churches of Christ, aren't you glad we don't have all that title, right? Great people, that's too long a sign. They've got to pay extra. But the independent churches and churches of Christ, they're people who are almost exactly like us in almost every practice, except they might say pastor and they might have a piano. Okay? But they're very, very close on most things. And some of them, there's not even those differences. And then you have the disciples of Christ, which is a very, like us, a very varied group 
from people who are more conservative than us to people who, who we would think are, are way liberal. But all of us come from that same restoration movement and were until the early, early, very beginning of the 1900s, one body in practice, not just in history. Okay? Uh, some of the reasons for the split go back to a, a geographical division of the Civil War. Politics has its effects, unfortunately. Some of it, and so there's a, a, a northern-southern divide in where each one is strongest. Church of Christ being stronger in the south and southwest. Uh, disciples being stronger up in the northern Midwest. You don't want to get into all that. But here's the thing. That church, the only division they'd ever had was when that happened. When the disciples and the churches of Christ split. Two groups born out of a movement that was supposed to be coming together as one. And people can justify that and will all they want to. But the truth is we kind of gave left brain one direction, right brain the other. This is the easiest way to break that down. And we're left with half our faculties. Together we would have been stronger. Together we could be stronger. In uh, this church, they had always become, since that 19... For them it was, you know, about 1901. Since that split around 1901, they'd never done anything together, ever. Not anymore. The Church of Christ in that community got such a reputation as good church, but they got such a reputation for being lone wolves that nobody even expected them to help anymore. They'd do it if it was their thing, but they wouldn't do it if it was somebody else's thing. We decided to change all that. And so... We started making sandwiches. They had a, a, a program during the summer. Here, there's a, some, another group that takes care of that. But at that time, uh, it had to be churches. If anybody was going to take care of it, it had to be churches. I would argue that was better. I would. But the churches started working together to do sandwiches. And so we started taking one of those weeks in the summer, and we said we'll provide all of the volunteers for that week. That's the way it was kind of broken down, days or weeks. And so we started doing that every week. That seems like a very small thing to do, okay? And it's not a bragging thing because, I mean, you're making sandwiches for a couple hours a day for a week. Whoop-de-doo, right? Except, do you know what it did? Remember what Jesus said? When they will be one, the world will see that and come to believe. Do you know it had that effect? The church's reputation changed immediately. First summer, one week of making sandwiches, started breaking down walls entirely within the community. The church then started to become known as a church that was far more open to serving within the community and it wasn't self-serving. It was God and community serving. Love your neighbor, love your Lord. Do you know that making a peanut butter sandwich with a Methodist doesn't make you want to run out and buy an organ? You can laugh at that. That's okay. Okay, That's all right. And if you're Methodist, you should be laughing even more. Okay, That you would think we would even be worried about that. Do you know it doesn't do that? Do you know that it actually does not make you a weaker Christian to work with somebody who's a different kind of Christian, but that it will actually give you open doors for you both to learn how to be better disciples together? We're all at different points on the road, and there are things that we all need to learn. Okay? The Methodists probably think we got some things we need to learn. we got some things we probably think they need to learn. And you know what? We're probably to some extent both right and probably to some extent both wrong. But you know what Jesus said? If y'all are going to claim my name, both of you, you've got to claim each other. That's what he said. I want them to be so one with each other that people know. And I know we worry about that kind of thing because we worry about, well, but what, I think this, this, and this are really important. You know what? Me too. You know, making that sandwich and feeding a child in the name of Jesus didn't change any of that. But you know what it did change? The whole church's reputation and doors flew open in that community because of that. It's got to be real and genuine. It can't be to make the door open. It's got to be real. 
But when they saw it, it was real. They saw a difference. Do you know that we started doing all kinds of things together, none of which compromised our beliefs, but all of which proclaimed Jesus? I remember going into a, a minister's alliance meeting with them that, uh, that year. And the first time I went, they nearly fell out of their chairs. Seriously, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I walked into that room and it was like, dum, 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 You know, that sort of a thing. Whew. When they saw I didn't have a helmet and a cape, they were relieved, you know? And I remember telling them, I said, listen, we want to do more with the community. There's obviously things we may not be able to participate in. And you know what they said? Oh, that's no problem. <laughs> they said, that guy over there won't do this, this, and this. That's what they told me. <laughs> I won't get into who or why because it's not important. The, uh, they were just thankful for an open door. I had some lasting friendships that came out of that with some of those brothers. And one of them, one of them uh, actually even said, listen, when, when we started to move to New York to go plant a church of Christ in New York, do you know one of those guys said, if you need anything, you call our congregation and we'll see what we can do to help? Let me tell you, in 1977, that ain't happening in 2016, it doesn't happen enough. But that's what he was willing to do. Of course, I told him I'd be fired if he did it. But no, I'm kidding. But <laughs> he, interesting enough, he actually he was the, the the pastor at First Baptist Church, whose father was Church of Christ and whose mother was Baptist. And I had no idea, you know, how he chose. I have no idea. I never got to have that conversation. But one conversation we did have was this. I went to him one time. I said, you know, his name was Morgan. I said, Morgan. There are some really important things where we have differences. I said, but I get the impression that sometimes, and I went to him specifically because he had both backgrounds, that we are saying sometimes the very same thing, but we say it so differently that we get mad at each other over how the other one says it. And I won't go into which issues it was. One of them was huge. And he said, that is exactly what we're doing. Most of us on either side won't admit that. On either side, okay, that's, that's twofold, 50-50. Won't admit it. But you don't get to have those conversations until sometimes you serve together in a food line, until you serve together in the trenches, it changes things. It really does. The second is integrity. Again, I said, you don't change your beliefs and water things down. That's disingenuous. Stay true to who you believe you are and who Christ is and what He wants you to be. But integrity also comes down to our personal decisions every single day. Unity is built on us being able to trust each other. And the first key to trust is integrity. I know that you mean what you say. I know you'll do what you say you'll do. And that if you say you're following Christ, I can expect from you a life that looks like it's following Christ. None of us are perfect. We're going to make mistakes. That's where grace comes in. There should be a G in unity for grace. But have some integrity. I like this quote from Tony Dungy. Integrity is the choice between what's convenient and what's right. And I think it's important when you talk about unity, too, because they're not going to want to be a part of us if we aren't really the people of God. And they're not going to be, uh, want to be a part of us if they think that we will just become, have no backbone. I think people respect when we respect the authority of God's Word and when we have the integrity to follow it. And they want to know that, that if we're going to have a common standard, it's Jesus, and that we're really trying to live that way. And that goes a long way to building this second part, which is trust. Trusting one another is absolutely necessary to bearing witness to the world about Jesus Christ. We need to know that we have each other's back. We need to know that that encouragement and that uplifting will be there when we need it. We need to be able to trust that no one has their own agenda, but instead has the agenda of Christ. 
that the pronouns tell the story that it is all about Him and not about us. And all about Him and not about me. When our greatest concern is, how, does, how do people see me? How, what are they going to say about me? We can't trust that. We can't trust that. What we can trust is that when we are all trying to serve Christ and according to God's will, we know those people will be there for us then, don't we? Because if they say they're following Christ and we are in need, aren't they going to help? Of course they are. If they say they're following Christ and I've fallen, are they going to show me grace or are they going to show me judgment? Which did Christ show? So which can they trust we're going to show? That trust comes back to the integrity, though. If we say we're going to be a people of grace, we actually have to show it. If we're going to be a people who understand that unity is God's desire more than division, we've got to show it, not just talk about it. That trust has to be there. And finally, there's this one. This one is maybe the one we had the most trouble with. How many of us like this sign when we're driving down the road? That's exactly how many hands I expected to see. Okay? I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust that you had the integrity to stay awake this far and that your hands were down because you don't like a yield sign. I don't like a yield sign. I'll tell you that right now. You know what a yield sign makes me use? Brakes. You think I like brakes? I ain't like no brakes. Uh-uh. Unless it's a curvy road in Vermont and then brakes very important. Yield signs. Nobody likes them. But how important is a yield sign? When you come to an intersection, boy, this goes back to integrity and trust, doesn't it? When you come to a yield sign and it's the other person with the yield, what do you hope they have? Integrity, brains, and brakes, and it's not James, right? That's, that's, that's what we're hoping. That's what, that's what Bill's hoping. I can see it. He's shaking up here. The, uh, we, we're hoping that they're going to do the right thing and yield. Now, I will tell you that when I come to somebody else's yield sign, where is my foot? It's on the brake then too. This is why I don't like them. Because what if that guy is also in a hurry and doesn't pay attention? Dangerous, right? I drove a school bus long enough that you ride, you have your foot hovering over the brake at any intersection with yields and stop signs and lights, regardless of whether or not you had the right of way. That's an important lesson. Regardless of whether or not you had the right of way, you are prepared to do what's best for the people that are on your bus. As Christians, who's on our bus? That the world may know that Jesus is the Christ. The whole world's on our bus. They're the ones we're watching out for, that they may come to know Christ. What will that sometimes mean? We need to be prepared for one thing, that sometimes the world is going to go right through a yield sign. Things aren't going to go the way they're supposed to. How do we react to that? We're willing to yield. When a sign is on us, how do we react to that? We're willing to yield. It takes a humble spirit to say, you know what, I'm going to yield you the right of way in this one. This could have gone either way. It's not right or wrong. It's a matter of opinion or preference or whatever. This could have gone either way. I really wanted to sing, you know, I wanted to sing the greatest commands. You wanted to sing farther along. That's a stop sign. That's not a yield sign, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> farther along. That's a yield sign when it's that slow. Sometimes you yield. You say, you know what? That's not the way I like things, but I'm willing to yield that to you. It's not that a big deal because it's not about me. It's about bringing people to Jesus. It's about letting them see the witness of who Christ is through the oneness of the body of Christ. And so we humble ourselves, and through that, does He exalt us? Yes, but more importantly, who's glorified? Christ and the Father who deserve it. I think you do these things, you start to see the world change. I think we do these things, we start to see our community and the, and the church's impression in the community change, and it won't be fake or disingenuous, and it can't be marketed. It'll be real, and it'll be lasting. Let's pray together.